If I were to use the phrase, what comes to mind, or maybe who comes to mind whenever you hear the phrase, needy people? I have a few amens. If you were not in church this morning, what might come to mind? Maybe somebody who's never satisfied, a complainer, somebody who's never content, maybe children, needy, you have to teach them everything. I mean, to teach a child to sleep is as needy as it gets. <laughs> but as I already hear uh, the amen, since we are in church this morning, your thought is probably this guy's about to talk about me whenever he talks about needy people. And I've had your faces before me in preparing this, but none so close as my own. So I am included in this of, of needy people. I am needy, but in need of what? A Savior, amen. And in need for how long? If my, if, am I ever strengthened to the point? Am I ever given the grace, given the power, given the ability to go on my own? We say no. Let's investigate. When we think of God, when you read the Scriptures and you think of Christ, we are and we should be reminded of our weaknesses. They should easily come to mind. We need Mercy, grace, love. We need the benevolence of God. We need Him to work on our behalf. But when you get the health, wealth, and prosperity, what happens? When the healing has come, you're free of the ailments. You're free of that acute pain. What begins to happen? Do we stay a needy people? We have everything that we want and so where do we go do we go into the house of the lord praising or do our hearts wander when our needs are supplied how many of us have just had those i'll say those times because we don't want to admit it's now where you just go on autopilot with righteous behavior you you know how to do this you've habituated godliness and so the motive is lacking we become busy. We become distracted. How many have put up post-it notes to remind you of something good only to find that thing there so long in the future that you forgot it was there? It's faded now. The only post-it reminder is if you put it right in front of your face on the mirror the first morning. After that, you'll just lean around it, right? We're a needy people. We need these things in our face, yet we find ways to lean around them, to go beyond them. So with a message titled, Needy People, I want to look at a passage this morning that speaks to our neediness. Because we, if you've had conversations outside this building, we are in a day where everyone, and I mean everyone, has their theory on how to live their best life now. They see no need. They have it fully supplied in their ideologies. So, the gospel, well, that's simple. That's backwards. Why would we need that? But for us, we must hold the gospel so clear so pure, so simply in our minds and our hearts that we have no other answer. We must have no hope apart from Christ that our gospel has no hope apart from Christ. There's a double meaning there. You can post it on Facebook. That our gospel, that we are so convinced of our need that we're so convinced that there's only one place that it would be satisfied. We're no longer in a culture influenced by the gospel. Gone are the days where we all grew up with a common culture in which certain things, the expectation, the standard was outside of us. The community knew thou shall not. We've gone beyond that. And in many ways, it sounds like the book of Judges now, where each person has, I mean, does what is right in their own eyes. You just ask them. 
And the only thing in common is that there's nothing in common. Everybody does what is in their own, right in their own minds. But you throw in social media in the way that everybody's able to communicate in mass, and it begins actually to sound more like the Tower of Babel, where everybody can communicate and everybody's, you know, everybody has a voice, that ideas, ideologies just become twisted and far out. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to read starting in verse 26, but verse 30 is going to be our our focus this morning. Because we have something here from the Apostle Paul that stands against the wisdom of the world. The ideas that in our flesh we might come up with. Starting in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are a needy people. It is because of Your goodness your mercy, your grace in our lives. It's because of that that we lose sight of this neediness. We go about on our own as if we're independent of you. But God, you you are our Father and you gave us Christ. He became to us. May each one of us, no matter how far we've strayed in our minds, no matter how much we've walked in our own strength, no matter how much we've neglected to look for your hand in our lives, may we bring our heart to you during this hour, convinced that your word is truth and that we need to hear from it. We're in need of trusting in it, in need of being transformed by it. Lord, please be pleased with the response of our hearts. Lord, do these things. We're not capable. We're not able. We need help from outside of ourselves. We are a needy people, Lord. Be with us. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. We're going to be looking at verse 30. There's four aspects that he mentions there. We see the terms wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, I want to break it down in this way. What does it mean whenever it says Christ became these to us? And since we're in Christ, not only did he become these to us, but now if we're in Christ, this is the condition in which we live. Not only that he did these things for us, but who he is to us. Because as you read that, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, you can also see there how it could be read Christ Jesus who became to us righteousness from God. Christ Jesus who became sanctification from God, which we'll deal with next week, and redemption from God. But this passage, it's, it's not one where we have the indicative and then imperative, where we're all going to walk out of here, okay, now this is how we need to live. But this is one of, of the thought, one that we need to meditate on. So this is one we need to take to mind, chew on. What does it mean that Christ has become these to us? How does that affect my life? I have the commands. I can follow the commands. Those are simple. But what undergirds that? What is behind that so that we might set our minds on this? So to begin this, Starting in verse 30, he says, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ because of Him. Who is Him? God. Some of your translations may say, and from Him. 
This is no surprise to us. Do the scriptures affirm that we are saved because of God? Christ came. We did not come to him. Despite what the song says, we were not knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. We were, Romans 3.11, no one seeks after God. Romans 9.18, he has mercy on whom he will. He hardens whoever he will. First Peter, he has caused us to be born again. This is God's plan. And we read here, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. God is the decider for those who are going to be in Christ. Does that, does that get a resounding amen? Because if it was up to us, the scriptures say, right now, as believers with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we can be tempted to say, well, if it was up to me, I would have chosen this life. Well, no, you have to think about what it would be like outside of that, without the Holy Spirit, without believing the testimony of the Scriptures. Before Christ, did it make sense? No, before Christ, I was the reluctant believer. I'm surprised that I'm, that I'm chosen. It, it's not a logical choice for me. And so then you can bear with people who would see that transformation and say, why are you a Christian? Because God chose it. If it was up to me, I would live like the rest of them. But whenever we are believers, we tend to think, well, no, I mean, this is a better way of life. And here springs up that righteousness. Now that we're healed, now... And there's a temptation that if we let that go, if we let that build, if we give that air to breathe, then we would become those who are not in Christ's righteousness, but we are in our own. No, we are a needy people. Any one of these four, our wisdom cannot escape our fallen mind. There are people right now trying to outsmart the natural order, and they think that they're just a few steps away from pausing life until they can come up with the technology to rejuvenate them in the future. That's, that's man's wisdom. I won't get into some of the other ideologies. Our righteousness, we could never satisfy a perfect God. Our sanctification, we would never choose to be in the image of Christ. And our attempt at redemption stops before we even get six feet in the ground. The best we have is earthbound. And then you've got to complicate that with our forgetfulness. My goodness. But it's that forgetfulness that leads us to some of the applications, some of the implications of today. That we are to be so convinced that this righteousness is outside of us and our only hope is Christ. That's what we want to conclude today. The second in preparation for those four words that we're going to be looking at is that Christ becoming to us, what does that imply? I'll give you a hint with the title. That if he became to us, then we were in need of it. So this was not something that we needed to discover or that was possible. If you're looking in 1 Corinthians 1, the thought flow starts at verse 18, where Paul is saying the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, but the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. The strength of the world is weak to God. And as this thought goes, the world would not have thought up of this redemption plan. The world, its ideas, of which we're all a part of, they're not going to exalt God. But as that cascade goes, I put emphasis on verse 29 and 31. What is the reason that this is all of God? That we might not boast in ourselves. But what does verse 31 say? We wouldn't boast in ourselves, but that we would. So there's an activity to this. It's not simply that we would deny our own strength, our own conclusion about ourselves, but that we would be so convinced that it would set us free to boast in a different direction. That, that's a 
cosmic difference. One of being quiet versus one of being loud, one of being joyful. It is in order that no human being might boast because there's nothing on the inside, but what came to us from the outside is something that we can boast in. We are a needy people, and that need has been satisfied. And God, demonstrating His wisdom, of which righteousness, sanctification, redemption, all of these come from outside. He couldn't put it in your lap to get it done. He couldn't put it in my lap to get it done. And if God didn't need any help from us to get it done, does he need your help to keep it going? No, these things are so apart from us that we, in our unbelief, do not hinder God. So let's dive into the second half of this verse. It says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. So how does Jesus Christ become to us wisdom? What does that even mean? It sounds a little bit like broken English, doesn't it? Like becoming wisdom does not sound like something a person can do. He became to us wisdom. Well, this Greek word here, became, I'm going to do some hand motions here. I need you to hold two thoughts in mind so you get hand motions over here. Became. This is to emerge from or to transition from one point, one realm, one condition to another. It signifies a change of condition, of state, of place. So there's a movement here. It became, it was, and now it has moved. It is to be manifest. It is used in the scriptures in referring to God's actions from that which is invisible to that which is visible. And that that makes sense to us. God taking what was once heard and now making it seen. Christ became to us wisdom. That with which we had a hearing of the ear, now we have a, a seeing. Which causes some problems for us because we don't actually see him. So aren't we going from hearing there was a group that saw and now we hear again? Let's dive in. Let's hold that thought along with this. And this is a little longer thought. But throughout the Old Testament, we have the revealing of God's wise plan for redemption. Starting all the way back in Genesis 3, what does he promise Eve? But in the curse, he, re- he promises a redeemer. You keep going to Abraham, he receives a covenant from God that what? That I will be with you, that, the, that this will go on, that I will multiply you. To Moses, we're familiar, Deuteronomy 18, he speaks of a prophet to which you will all listen. We have all of these types, all of these images. King David is promised one who sits on his throne forever. What does Hebrews, who does Hebrews say that is? Jesus Christ. Through the prophets, we hear God saying, I will do this. I have redeemed you. I will be your husband. This is my plan. And all throughout that, what we have is a foreshadowing. We're hearing of this plan coming, but we don't have the real substance of it yet. We have a plan of redemption. It would be like the shadow on the ground. If there's a shadow cast on the ground, it gives an outline of the image that is there. So the image we can't see yet, and it's casting a shadow. And from that shadow, we can study it and learn stuff. The Old Testament, they're not looking at a shadow saying, well, clearly this guy's going to have two arms. I mean, I can see him right there and a beard. So we're looking for a guy with a beard. That shadow on the ground from all these prophecies is they're saying, he's going to be a suffering servant. He's going to take our place. He's going to be the one where all wisdom resides. 
He's going to be pure and righteous. And they're looking at the shadow and they're able to give great definition to it. But it's not full because what do they need to do? Turn and see the image that's casting that shadow. So throughout the Old Testament, we have these types. We have this eager anticipation. We have this plan of redemption. But until Christ comes, that is a plan, a shadowing. It's what it's going to look like. And whenever Christ comes, now we have the real. So you put those two thoughts together and the redemption plan is Christ who was before the foundation of the world was going to come into, he was going to be manifest and he was going to be the embodiment of the redemption plan. The wisdom of God that nobody else gets in on and nobody else can take any credit for was founded when? before the foundation of the earth. And it was in Christ, but it had to transition. It had to become a man. It sounds like Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, He's casting a shadow, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found, there's that became, being found in human form. So we hear about the redemption plan. We hear about the wisdom of God all throughout the Old Testament. But then the real shows up and is, his name is Jesus Christ. This is not Christ becoming something other than what he was. He did not previously have been God and now he's all man but not God. He simply transitioned from one form to another and that form was in the form of man. But for us, we went from the Old Testament where we heard from God. We heard his word. All the prophets, they heard this, but that is not a form. That's why Hebrews says, until Christ came, the fulfillment wasn't there yet. They were still waiting. They were looking forward, longing for it. They had the shadow. But we have the real. We have that redemption plan found. So they heard, but we see. That's an amen. That's an amen because from that, we can't sit here and say, well, okay, now this is now how I need to live. No, this is what we need to value. This is what we need to praise. This is what we need to lift up. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 says it this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There's the shadow. There's the hearing of this. And it parallels us in our unbelief. We heard about it. There was a shadow of it. But until Christ came, Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. In this image, whenever you turn and see the real, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So that shadow that was being cast was the exact imprint of God. That was the image that we were looking at. And you turn and you see Christ and they say he is the exact imprint of his nature. Amen. What was in word was now in flesh. You just went through John 1.1 1, 1, and the word was God. Or in the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. Christ came from that shadow to be the image. And that is what Paul is meaning thereby. He became to us wisdom. This narrative of us being a needy people is not a shocker. But the aim of this upside down plan, it's so that it would be impressive, that it would be awesome. No, it is simply that we would not boast 
in ourselves, but we would boast in God. Does that seem like a low target to hit? No, actually, I do not boast in God. I mean, if I were to evaluate, I, I don't do it enough. It'd be hard to say I do it at all. Do I boast in God? Is that my conclusion to the work of Christ? God wants my trust in myself, my trust in my plan, my trust in my understanding to be so shattered, so confused, so impotent that conversely, my faith in him would be so robust, so confident that I would speak it, that I would boast in him. We see Paul continue this thought throughout 1 Corinthians. In chapter 2, right after this, 1 to 4, he's talking about the city in which he's ministering, Corinth. He says he's, he's not wanting to put on that extra layer of impressiveness to the gospel. Is that tempting in evangelism, to put on some extra spin, to add some stuff to it? I don't want to do that. Verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We want to convince that we are so wrong in our understanding that it is so impressive what Christ has done in becoming our wisdom or becoming wisdom to us that we would praise it. And this letter is written in a culture, Corinth, that was described, one commentator described it as intellectually alert materially prosperous and morally corrupt. Intellectual, materially prosperous, morally corrupt. And Paul does not want to go in and try to impress people. He's not trying to bring that, as he says there in verse 4, with lofty speech and wisdom. He wants the gospel to speak for itself. This boasting in ourselves, the boasting in our own thoughts, our own righteousness, was Corinth. But Paul wants to show a different way. And I have some nods here because that's not unlike what we confront in the world. We're now, with the gospel, tempted to try to join it with the God of science. right? And science now is reduced to polling. In the polling where N equals four gets airtime on media. There are, and I'm hearing some, some snickering there because it is absolutely true that, well, this, I, I can't even give details of it. It's so absurd. Well, this right here is proven. A new study shows it. And by study, that meant science. And people are so swayed by this when really they ask the four people in the room what they thought, and they're all four people who work there, live, you know, I mean, it's like, that's all one mind. And they present that as truth. And here's the gospel trying to set itself up with some, some apologetics. Can we, can we throw in the creation museum to add a little bit of impression, to really glam it up? Do we need some our guys to be heavyweights in CNN. I mean, it's tempting. It's tempting to, to try to convince people by overcoming their defenses in whatever the, the mind of the world has. But Paul says, no, the gospel is not to be dressed up in some form of lofty speech and wisdom and, and added worldly... worldly it is to be pure and simply preached that Jesus Christ is the exact image of God and came, that he might die, that those who had placed their faith in his payment before God would be in him and declared righteous and dwell with him forever. Man, I look forward to that. It started now in part. Here's the shadow. But whenever I'm there and the shadow is gone, oh man.
Hopefully there won't be any little girls with broken arms there. And because of him, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom. What is, if, if the plan of God is our conversion, what does communion look like? What does it look like that we are in the wisdom of God? What is the, the, the so what of this? We have to consider our lives. We can't be naive to think that we live in a time where the plan has already been revealed. So it's so influenced our, our way of thinking. We're believers. So we already have the Holy Spirit residing in us, agreeing with the things of Scripture. But apart from that, what, is, what are we talking about here? Is this like the wisdom of God came where that's who I was as an unbeliever and I would have believed those fallen ideas but now with the wisdom of God, I believe the Bible. Is that what Paul's getting at? That we're comparing what wisdom was like prior to Christ and now in Christ? It's maybe tempting to say that. Christ has become wisdom to me, so now I live a righteous life. And that may be true, but that's not what this passage is about. And a primary application of this is not Christ has become wisdom to us, therefore believe the Bible. That is a low target to to aim for. This is much greater. That is a drop-down window, but Christ becoming wisdom to us is not a matter of our thinking or of our intellect. It is a matter of boasting in how one is saved. This is not about the ways of the Bible are better than the ways of the world. Christ doing these things, his intended target was that we would be so impressed and so convinced that this is all of God and I have no part to play in this. And even after saved, I contribute nothing to further this and better it and dress it up. But this is all of Christ. That we, at that point, would say, praise God. That's his point in saying, no, this is all mine. This is all mine. All my plan from beginning to end. It's that we would trust in it. That we would fear God and not boast in our righteousness, not boast in what we may contribute to it. And there's no way for the unbelieving mind to wander into this. No way. There might be the objection. I mean, I know some unbelievers who live moral lives. I know some who do good. They don't lie, cheat, or steal any more than the rest of us. Doesn't that make them good people? Is that sufficient? No, but do they live moral and upright lives as an offering to Christ? Is that their motive, that they would be pleasing to God and praising His name? Well, no, that's, if, if they did that, then they probably wouldn't be an unbeliever. And so our evangelism must not trust in anything that does not expressly press that. We present the gospel to anyone, and it's confrontational. As Paul says, just one more chapter into chapter 3 now, verses 6 and 7, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. What's the first step to planting a seed? Digging a hole. I, I, I quip with that, that the first step, you know, some people plant some water. I'm the guy who just digs the hole. But the reality of that is, yeah, there is a confrontation in which things are disrupted. And in order to put a seed in there, we go from people who have ideologies that are raised up against the knowledge of God, and it is a fortress. What do you do to, to come against a fortress? You have to break it down. You have to go in there. You've got to do some damage. 
in the confrontation, if we try to dress this up and try to back off some, we lose the power of the Holy Spirit to execute His plan. And now it's me trying to convince. That's, that's not what this is. We bring a gospel that offends, and it offends. I didn't write it. I'm a man with a book. And I am only considered faithful if I preach it faithfully, if I speak it faithfully, if I minister it faithfully. And to those who hear the gospel that we preach, they need to see that their means are hopeless. That their ideologies are not just ridiculous, but hopeless. The two please God is not something of their will because they will have to make that choice. It needs to convince them. So as I prior said, this is a decision all of God. We are to lay it before them. Christ or yourself. One, there is absolutely no way you're going to boast about it. Conversely, your way, you're going to boast about it. Do you want to be in the one that is all and purely done by Christ? I do. We live in a world in which wisdom says things like, the problem is the diagnosis. It's the systems of oppression. Throw in the buzzword. That's the problem that we have. And yet the wisdom of God says, in Luke 12, Christ said, those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Oppressed or or not oppressed, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. The world says freedom is found in finding your authentic self. I'm not positive what that means, but I know that the word of God says in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And later he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is confusing whenever you hear the mantras of the world. Just ask your coworkers what it is that life is about. And this is why I say it, it just like scatters in every direction. You hear things like it's finding the limits of human ability and then pushing on beyond them. And I'm thinking like, do you know what limits are? Because if there's limits and you just push right past and then that, It wasn't a limit. It was was just how far you went. You know, I hear it in the sports realm. Um, I want to know what the human body is capable of. It's like YouTube it. I I mean, how fast can the human being run the mile? And it's like, well, I'm not going to be the one who figures that out. I mean, you know, is that how I'm going to live my life is to see, to know myself? And I see it with all the motivations, and it's just such a low bar that I just... uh, I use those same activities. My, My desire, it's not perfect in its execution, but my desire is to use everything to the glory of God. How do I use even the most simple of things to work on my spiritual life? And we also live in that world that says, well, the polls say... I mean, if you listen to the polls, the gospel is barely hanging on. They're not even a voting block anymore, right? So y'all need to change to to up your political power. And to that, we, we don't enter the gospel in for argument. It's too valuable to us. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us righteousness from God. In the wisdom of God, this righteousness had to come from outside of us. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Through Moses, God says this three times, and I want us to hear it so that we would 
hear the, what is the shadow of the things to come. And you, you're going to hear something here that is going to cue you in on a New Testament passage. So Deuteronomy chapter 9, this is the shadow. But listen to what's said. Starting in verse 1, he says, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you are, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakin, whom you know and whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you is a consuming fire, or that goes over is the Lord. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So then you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So the quick commentary, read there. Taking over the promised land on your own, impossible. Verse 4, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord God has thrust him out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is not because, or whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. That's the condition in which he brings, which he finds them. So at that point, what basis do they have to boast in their righteousness? For the rest of chapter 9, God goes through, through Moses, to speak of their sin, their fallenness. Even in verse 24 of chapter 9, you have been a rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. That's the shadow. Whenever you think New Testament, what verse comes to mind? It is not because of our righteousness, but listen to Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. You hear the shadow of that. You hear what the, the mind of God, whenever He sees the people of God, whenever He finds them in their fallen condition, and he says, I'm about to do great and awesome things for you. Salvation. It is not because of your righteousness. And when you get into the promised land, what are you going to be tempted to think and to say? But, well, it, I'm here because of my righteousness. No, what righteousness did we have apart from Christ? That's how convinced in the, the wisdom of God we must be in order to evangelize properly. That I can't give you anything to do. Well, then what, what must I do? You'd be like the man who wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven but said, God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. That posture is one who says, this is all of God. It is all outside of me. I have nothing but need. Jonathan Edwards famously said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And that's our evangel. 
That's the gospel that goes out. Nothing that you come up with. Nothing that you contribute. And even once you're in the promised land, what do you contribute? What is righteous in you that God might say, thank you for that contribution. I owe you one. No, in in no condition. He lays out obedience and we're to follow. And whenever we do that, we've done right. A slave does not come in from the field and say, now master, serve me. A slave comes in and says, I am a slave. And he continues to serve. Luke chapter 10. But what does this mean in practice that Christ is or has become our righteousness? I'm going to fast forward an ending here by using another analogy. 1 Samuel 17, we're familiar with David and Goliath. Israel, no matter how Good they were at fighting. They had a leader named Saul, and Saul's problem was fear. Paralyzed fear because Goliath. And they give a long description of Goliath. Pretty intimidating. The conclusion they came to was, this is going to be impossible. But obviously, Goliath could be defeated, as as we see. But all of Israel was in need of, of one. Goliath didn't say, I'll fight you all. He said, send out one. So they, Israel was in need of one man to do this. And who was that one man? David. He goes out as their representative. But when David won, he defeated Goliath, the one-on-one. When David won, who won? All of Israel. So the whole group wins. If you were to go up to Bob the Israelite afterwards and say, Bob, you are such a poor soldier. You are a liability in that battle, Bob. What would Bob say to you? Would Bob say, well, you're right. No, Bob would say, it was not because of my ability that we won. What David did saved us all. Now, what does Bob go about doing? Does he stay lazy? No. Something has happened from outside of him that has saved him, that is so impressed upon him. What would you expect a soldier, the worst one, the liability, what would you expect him to do? Leave the army? No. He would train. He would train himself for righteousness, wouldn't he? Because he doesn't want to bring shame upon the people, he wants to be a good soldier. That would be what we would expect from Bob the Israelite. Robert the Israelite, a distinguished name. But that's the purpose of 1 Corinthians one thirty one, one thirty and one thirty one would be that we would be so convinced that we wouldn't be silent about our own righteousness, but that we would boast in the Lord. So that question of am I still Needy? Do I still... Or have I habituated my righteousness to the point that I defend it? That whenever you would bring something against me, I'm going to argue with you because, hey, you know, I've got a real defense here. I'm really kind of something. If Christ is your righteousness, so here, here's a good take home. If Christ is your righteousness and it is all outside of you, then if somebody notices something that is in you and says, Jacob, this is a fallen aspect of your heart. Steve, this is weakness in you. How do you respond? But like Bob the Israelite, you say, what the king has done for me has saved me. 
And now I am going to turn and be like him. You found weakness. You found the chink in my armor. You found that spot that could get through. I am going to go to the one who would defeat and overcome all. The wisdom of God, the plan set apart before anything went wrong. I'm going to go there and be healed, but also be led in righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. It's applied to me. And that you would see in my fallenness, fallenness. How many of us are surprised by that? As evidenced by arguing, blame shifting, excuse making. Because the arrow got through. Oh, you didn't see that. Oh, no, I was going to do the, I was going to do the old tuck and you weren't going to get me there. No, we turn to Christ and say, you're right. In myself, I am not righteous, but Christ has become to me righteousness. And if I have no good apart from Christ, that's not like victim mentality. That, that's a boast, isn't it? That's a boast. Let's pray. God, we are a people who are far too silent. We, we know what's right. And in many ways, Lord, we live out these things. We, we live righteously before you. But do we boast in you? Do we praise your name? At a time like this, it'd, it'd be easy for us to, to all be convinced that salvation is all of you. But tomorrow, do we still find ourselves in need desperate need of your righteousness applied to us lest we go astray lest we begin fighting amongst one another measuring our obedience against one another I pray we wouldn't do that but that we would stay needy that we would stay those Lord who need someone else to do this for us Lord, may we meditate on these things and so be changed in our minds that the way that we treat one another, the way that the men treat their wives, the way that wives respond to their children and their husbands, may that be different because of what we've heard, that you are our defender. Lord, do all these things um, not for us, but for your name, that we would boast in it. And I lift this all up in the name of Christ. Amen.